Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The show where my wife gave me a big bent Pete means, well, you know. Now I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, coming to you, uh, hey, just a, just a little bit pre-recorded. Yeah, currently it's Tuesday morning, and I am heading off to Chicago in about uh, three hours I leave for the airport, so... Sitting here doing the show real quick for you. Uh, Chicago Pipe Show coming up this weekend. Yeah. Sorry if you won't be there. I will. Anyway, uh, in Pipe Parts, I'm going to take, uh, take a few indulgent minutes and pontificate based off of uh, some recent life experiences. My guest tonight is uh, pre-recorded. It's uh, Pete Siegel. Pete was a, a retailer and importer of pipes for many many years uh mailbag music rant all that coming up in uh this episode of the pipes magazine radio show and just a reminder just a reminder you must be of legal smoking age to listen to this wonderful show wherever you might be um jdrf auctions so the last round, the second and final round of items are up for auction right now on the Pipe Stud eBay store. Uh, that's Steve Fallon's Pipe Stud eBay store on eBay. And currently there is a Daverin Denovic unsmoked brand new pipe that was given to me by Toby Decody. That is up for auction a uh, Brigham 2011 Pipe of the Year. It was the prototype for the finished Pipe of the Year. That's uh, directly from my collection. And another piece from my collection is a uh, Peter Stokeby Highland Whiskey Tobacco Barrel Display. It's a uh, miniaturized tobacco barrel that was given away in the uh, mid to late 90s when they introduced that. Uh, that is up on the Pipe Studs e- eBay store. And on his pipestud.com consignment shop, uh, a tin of Old Ironsides, which is uh, uh, CAO or Dan Tobacco's Old Ironsides. Uh, The tin cannot be any newer than 2003, according to Steve. That tin was donated by uh, the diabetic man himself, Tom Provost. And it's up for sale, just a direct sale, no auction there. Also, Kevin Godby donated three different tins of tobacco. A uh, 2010 McBaron production of Capstan, a GLP's 2009 2-ounce tin of the limited edition NASPC show blend tree beard, only available at the NASPC show. And uh, that's from 2009. And then another tin from 2010 of the NASPC shows Blend Area 51. And remember, every penny that you spend on those goes directly to finding a cure for type 1 diabetes, helping people like uh, Tom and my daughter to, uh, you know, maybe live a little bit better life, uh, possibly find a cure and also research for uh, new ways to help diabetics in their daily lives. So please check those out. We do appreciate it greatly. Uh, direct donations were up to $305. Again, last year we hit $3,000. We had a couple of big donations of items and appreciated that. We would love to at least make it over $1,000 total for this year with your help. So links to that are directly on the Pipes Magazine radio show page. All right, everybody, let's get the show rolling. So sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company, and here we go. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. At Cornell & Deal, we think the best things in life are better with age. 
and we are passionate about creating the best possible pipe tobacco available. Fueled by this passion, we introduced the Cellar Series, a collection of blends like no other. While the blends in this series are ready to smoke now, each one has been meticulously designed to optimize depth and complexity as the tobacco ages in the tin. Currently, the Cellar Series is comprised of Oak Alley, Chenet's Cake, Joie de Vivre, Old Grove, and Bourbon Blue, but we will be unveiling new additions to this very special series as time goes on. Pick up a tin to smoke now and save a few for later enjoyment so that you can experience all the richness and subtlety each blend will reveal through the years. Cornell & Deal's Cellar Series. The secret ingredient is time. Contact your local or online retailer for information. Welcome back. Uh, in just a few minutes, Pete Siegel. And in the meantime... I want to uh, take the pipe part segment to uh, pontificate just a little bit and uh, fill most of you in, but for the past uh, little bit over four years, I have been helping my grandmother with her uh, with her you know day to day managing of her uh, of her affairs and her life and sometimes counseling her. Uh, when I started doing this, my grandmother had just turned ninety seven ninety eight and she had taken a fall and woke up on the uh, floor of her kitchen about uh, 14 hours later. She spent the night in the hospital and was sent back home and was told that she needed to have around-the-clock assistance with her. My grandmother had been living alone since uh, June of 2000 when my grandfather passed away. Well, a week ago... Monday, my grandmother, at 101 years, 6 months, and 24 days, finally passed away in the night. Uh, literally had dinner, went to bed. The nurse said she heard a little respiratory distress and went straight to sleep. Um, I don't feel sad for the loss of life. I feel sad for the lack of companionship. At the same time, the last seven or eight months had not been real kind to my grandmother. It was the only time that she had really suffered any dementia or memory issues and was on a very progressive downhill slide, and it was more painful for us to watch and deal with than it was for her to probably live through it. But anyway, she's... No longer in any pain, no longer suffering, no longer confused. Uh, she's resting peacefully. What is remarkable to me is that this is a lady that was born in 1914, where in the United States, women did not have the right to vote. Uh, at age 10, she and her younger brother were given a crystal set. And in Kansas City, Kansas, at age 10, she had to wait for the sun to go down in order to tune in the crystal set and get the only radio station they could get on it, which was from Chicago. Uh, this is a lady that lived through not only the tail end of the effects of World War I, but the Great Depression, World War II, Korea, the threat of Vietnam on our family, and all at the same time managed to finally get her high school diploma at the age of 48 after the war and while being while having a child uh, my grandparents both of them ran their own business all their lives scrimped and saved and scrimped and saved to the point where my grandmother was able to spend her final days in her own house with some assistance and uh most of her, uh, you know, most of her faculties. It's the definition of what a strong woman is. Uh, the definition of a very of a strong generation that was able to do without and without any kind of an education, live in their house, saved up their money, did the right things, was able to afford to live. She could have lived another eight, ten years without having any effect on her finances. Um, 
my grandmother was raised by her father. My great-grandfather was a pipe smoker from age 12 or 13, as near as we can tell. Uh, he passed away when he was 94, so after 90 years of, or 80 years of smoking a pipe, probably not too much, uh, not too many issues from uh, tobacco. And um, the idea of secondhand smoke, not too much of an issue. My grandmother made it to 101 and a half, and her two brothers lived to 94 and 87, respectively. Moral of the story is that life is precious. Life is uh, definitely full of ups and downs, and uh, life is to be celebrated and not mourned over. All right, enough of that. Chicago show's coming up, <laughs> and I'm excited, and I'm going to uh, live every moment of this year's show. And in the meantime, Pete Siegel will be on the phone with me in just a minute. This is Internet Radio. Craftsmanship, history, tradition. These are the hallmarks of all quality products. From the finest wines bottled in France to the most highly engineered automobiles manufactured in Germany, Denmark has been the one country in the world where craftsmanship, history and tradition have for centuries created the finest pipe tobaccos in the world. Since 1887, the Halberg family have led the pipe tobacco industry through their ownership of Mac Baron Tobacco Company, and they continue to create the most sought-after blends in the world today, just as they did over 100 years ago. In keeping with their long history of providing the world with the best tobacco on earth, Mac Barron is proud to announce their newest creation, Modern Virginia, as a loose-cut version and a flake version. Bright and dark, rich Virginia tobaccos have been combined with just a hint of burley for strength in this soft and smooth smoke with delicious fruit undertones. As the world leader in flake tobacco production, Mac Barron is sure that this blend will appeal to the true connoisseurs of traditional Virginia flake tobacco, as well as those who like their tobaccos on the sweeter side. Enjoy the culmination of centuries of experience by picking up a tin of modern Virginia from Mac Barron Tobacco Company. Available at fine tobacconists everywhere. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show and we're going back a little bit in history again with tonight's guest because tonight's guest has been in the pipe business on uh, retail import manufacturing we've got a lot to get through so please welcome pete siegel to the pipes magazine radio show pete welcome hi brian all right so uh so we uh we heard ken had ken barnes on and uh then your name popped up quickly after so Tell us all, first of all, where did you grow up and when did you first become interested in pipes? Well, I'm not sure I want to be on any show that would have had Ken Barnes. <laughs> but uh, Even worse, we had <laughs> Bob Gregory on. No, I'm of course kidding. Well, I grew up in a, a place called Rochelle Village, and uh, there was a sort of a tobacco store, candy store. I used to get my mother Paul Mall cigarettes there. And the owner used to give it to me. I was nine, ten years old, and one day he asked me if I could stay and watch the ice cream counter because he had to leave, and I asked her, I make ice creams, and he explained how to do it real fast, and he hurried off, and I did, I guess, maybe eight, ten dollars in ice cream business, which in 1965 was a lot of money, <laughs> and he brought me behind the counter, I made change real well, and he said, you're hired, and I worked as the second guy on Sundays, and uh, that's really where I started, I was actually, uh, that was April 11th, 1965, I just always been a date I remembered but he um, he had a couple of other stores eventually I worked in several of his stores I managed some of his stores and then um, my brother and I bought one of his stores in the Green Acres Mall which was not too far from where we lived and was that when you uh, when you really got into the pipe world not at all um, when I worked in the stores I learned the brands I learned the prices I was real good with the prices but I really didn't know anything much about pipes and tobacco. I knew far more than the layman. I knew more than most customers. But compared to what I think I learned, I didn't know much then. Uh, when I bought the store with my brother, we learned a lot then. We had to. But I didn't know a great deal then until 1980. Um, Dunhill had their main dealer conference. And we were rather unsuccessful Dunhill dealers up to that point. But, uh, and we weren't making a lot of money. 
but I uh, ended up winning a trip. Dunhill had a, a their annual dinner at the RTDA, and I won a trip to England. So I went to England in 1980, April 1980. I met Dave Field there. He introduced me to the collecting world, and as far as pipes, that's when everything took off. I came, supposed to stay for a two-week vacation because I hadn't had a vacation in, well, just about my whole life, you know, except as a kid. And I came back in nine days instead of 14, completely supercharged, told my brother we're buying a Baldor buffer, which was Dave's recommendation, and off we went. And within, I mentioned this before, but within uh, three years, we were the largest Dunhill pipe dealer in the world. And when you mean largest in the world, any idea what kind of quantity of pipes you were moving? We sold about 1,500 Dunhills in three years. Wow. So that, I mean, yeah, we sold, that's like well, one we, and we a half a the, day. Yeah, we, we, we had some help. We had, um, we had a customer who was, uh, you know, they talk about whales in Las Vegas. He was a pipe whale. Uh, there were stories going around New York about the guy who bought 16 Dunhills, including a couple of straight grains, one, one day. And a friend of mine who owned a store in New Rochelle was telling a customer about it. The customer didn't believe him. In walked that customer, but he had come from my shop where he bought the 16 Dunhills. <laughs> now, what were? Do you remember the prices of the of Dunhills then? Um, you know, I'm going to be a little fuzzy because they it is a price range, which is really the price range from when we first had them till we left the store in uh, July 23rd, 83. It was 190 to 250 on Briere's. It was pretty much the same on Roots. The shells were, I think, 160 to 190, 195. And now the basic shell is about uh, five and a quarter. Well, yeah, things have gotten a little more expensive. Yeah. So where do we go in your career after that? Well, what? In 1980, when that happened, uh, I became very close friends with Dave rather quickly, and uh, he introduced me to the collecting world. I got deeply involved in that, and I found barling, which has been an enduring passion of mine for my whole life. Um, I still smoke and collect bar. I really don't collect them, but I have a number of barlings, and I smoke them, and I still feel they're the finest pipe ever made, including my own, which I thought were great pipes, but barling was the epitome to me and I met a lot of the collectors a lot of guys who are now the long tooths those were guys who were the younger guys when I started and um, I was heavily involved in that for maybe six eight years and I would say from 1980 till 1992 that 12 year period is where I learned what I know about pipes it was sort of constant master class things like uh, you know going to all the factories uh, making the Elephant and Castle tobaccos and being at the McConnell factory a lot. Oh. Um, a lot of brands that are still around. It's really nice to see. Like uh, We started with like Pusella, Tonino, Mastro de Paya. Um, we were the original importers. We didn't keep them very long necessarily, but you know we had them. And uh, I became sort of like a bee, I guess you might say. I cross-pollinated some ideas between some of the manufacturers. And I guess by 1985... The largest selling handmade in the world was James Upshaw, and the second was Sir Jacopo. And third might have been Radici, and we had all three lines at that time. All right, you, you, you piqued my interest because you talked about Elephant and Castle and going to the McConnell's factory, and that's the old McConnell's? Yeah, Barking Road, 164 to 8 Barking Road. And I didn't know this, but so you started the Elephant and Castle line? Yeah, it's sort of an interesting story because of my, um, because of the, the collectors that I knew. There were a lot of story tobaccos like Dunhill Shell Mixture, uh, Freiburg and Trias Golden Mixture, and they had gone out of production. And that's something that happens today. And the real reason that these things happen, going out of production, very often is the tobacco crops change. I didn't know that at the time. So when I went to uh, England, nineteen. 82. I had made up a blend in 1980 at the Dunhill store. That was 
that was one of the blends we wanted, but we had a slate of seven, it was either seven originally or six, but we wanted seven tobaccos, which we were going to sell in our store, and we were at this point, 1982, just embarking on wholesaling, and we thought maybe we'd do some wholesaling on it. But we, uh, I, I went to the factory. Rob actually never went to the factory until much later, and I asked McConnell, well, can I have Davidoff's royalty, and we'll call it this, and can I have this one and call it this? And he said, no, you can't. <laughs> I said, why can't I have it? Said, because it's Davidoff's blend. And I said, all right, what about Bryberg and Trias Golden Mixture? They don't make it. He goes, I can't make it. He said, the Virginias have changed. Those came from the U.S. I'm getting Indian tobaccos now. They're very good, but they're very different. I said, uh, so where does that leave us? Where it left us was... Uh, with several of my, well, I'll, I'll actually go through them, hopefully we have time. Yeah. There was Cromwell, which was originally supposed to be Davidoff's royalty. We added some more Latakia, and that became Cromwell. Uh, that was pretty much all Ken McConnell was doing. Isle of Skye was supposed to be Red Rappery. This was, I, I've got to tell you, this was just an unabashed um, price push, I guess you might say. Red Rappery was our favorite tobacco. We wanted the cheapest source of acquisition we could find, so we wanted to make it in our own tobacco. <laughs> and, of course, he wouldn't give it to us. So that one, Isle of Skye, is actually sort of I'll push that to the side for a second. The stout was my mixture, which was used black Mallory as a base, and I think the stout's got a great reputation now. It was, to me, the greatest full Latakia mixture. I'm not trying to pat my own back. New World was my mixture. That was made with um, a certain Caribbean country's cigar tobacco <laughs> because he could get it, but you know you know what I'm talking about. I, I don't um, know anything about what you're talking about at all whatsoever. Nothing at all. I really don't either. I'm just... Uh, the Roanoke was the hardest to make by far. It barely made it for our launch date that we set. Uh, the Roanoke was redone constantly, and uh, that... It really, I feel, turned out to be terrific. It, was a, it wasn't as mild as the Golden Mixture. It was a little fuller. It was a broader cut. And we had that Indian tobacco, which when worked well, it's fine tobacco. It's just that it's different. Um, I'm trying to think of all... Oh, the Deerstalker was a flake based on the old shell mixture, but not made in curlies. McConnell showed me the machine, and we actually, we actually got it out, and we got it up and running. It was a manual machine, a crank... Uh, curly maker, uh. and the cost to make those curlies was astronomical. So he said, I can make it as a flake, but not as a curly, unless you want to pay twice the price. And he said, and frankly, we'd rather not do it. So we made it as a flake, but it's based on the the original Dunhill shell mixture, and because that was a mixture that had not been made in many years, it's similar. I had the, the original Dunhill shell. The problem was that the, the tins I had were at least 10 to 20 years old, and I couldn't say that the the uh, Deerstalker is the same, but it's quite close. And there was also the cigarette tobacco. Sobrani had stopped making their um, their Turkish cigarette cut, and so the Blue Mosque became a cigarette cut Turkish. And we used Kavala for two reasons. One, it was a it, it's a very fine leaf and it cuts very very well thin. But Basma A, which was the most prized of all the uh, Turkish at that time. That was just too expensive. It would have doubled or tripled the cost. Wow. I'm still just, I'm just kind of jealous of you being able to be in McConnell's old factory and standing there with him. And uh, Anyway, have, yeah. Brian, I have to tell you, Ken McConnell, you know, I, I got to know him really well over the years, and I liked the man tremendously. I didn't really know Mick, his brother, but I knew Ken. Ken ran the factory and was the he was the real tobacco expert and he was an expert. He took me to some of the leaf wholesalers. Um, I would spend he would just mark the whole day for me, and so I just took advantage of that. I mean, it never occurred to me to ask him, Ken, am I bothering you? <laughs> it was just wonderful. Every single day at his factory was great, and the smell going into the little catty cornered ante room as you entered, where there was a coat rack, as you entered that room, just opening the door, you were hit with this incredible tobacco aroma. Just natural, delicious, sweet tobacco. It was fabulous. Oh. 
All right, while I'm slobbering here, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about pipes and uh, all that other stuff. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Smokingpipes.com has been my family's tradition for over 10 years. My granddad enjoys his evening pipe on the front porch. My father prefers his in the study, and well, me, I like to hang outside the local coffee shop with a pipe in one hand and my smartphone in the other. The best selection is at smokingpipes.com. They always have the exact pipe I'm looking for. Savinelli, Peterson, Dunhill, and great stuff from dozens of top artisans around the world. Plus, they have over 70 tobacco brands with 750 blends to choose from. Lighters, tampers, tobacco jars, yep, they have that too. But the best part about SmokingPipes.com is that it's easy to order from my computer, tablet, or even my smartphone. And if Granddad has trouble with technology, he can always call them at 1-888-366-0345. I heard that. Do you think I'm deaf? I'm the one who told you about SmokingPipes.com, and I had a smartphone before you. You kids today, blah, blah. SmokingPipes.com. Make it your family tradition. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. I've managed to wipe most of the drool off of my mouth, but uh, we're visiting with Pete. And Pete, you talked about all those Italian names. I mean, were you dealing with uh, Caminetto and all those guys after they had their breakup and bringing their brands in separately? Well, uh, no, yes and no. Um, the man who was the worldwide agent for Radici was Gino Menegazzi, who, I, after my father passed, he became my Italian father. I loved him dearly. And Gino was at the breakup between Dobbly, Scorti, and uh, Radici, and he ended up getting the distributorship for Radici. So I know some things about it. Uh, it's probably best left to talk, you know, somebody to talk about it who has first-hand information, mine is second-hand, but we did get from some of the stores there, uh, when we had the retail store, we got mostly very high-end Caminettos. At one point, we had seven super mustaches, ranging from about, I think, about $600 to $2,500 in a showcase. Remember, that's 1982. Wow. We sold all seven to the same guy. So what was was it? I mean, back then you were dealing with these guys mostly over the telephone or by uh, by regular letter mail. No, we well we did that. Yes, mostly by phone. We we would actually bounce around. This is how long tooth I am. In those days, you bounced around from your long distance provider, Sprint or Skynet or some other companies, according to the rates you got. And we were using long distance so often that it was very important to us. But I, Rob and I tended to go to, to Europe about six, eight times a year between us, and usually about the same amount to Italy and England. Um, Upshall took a lot of attention. It was our largest brand. Uh, the Italian run was by far the more, <laughs> the more enjoyable because going to, going to work with Ken was usually two weeks at the factory sleeping in the factory. But going <laughs> to Italy was, it was a vacation. Yeah, all right, so so how does this work? You show up, and then there's a whole bunch of pipes, and did you handpick them, or did you show up and talk about what you needed for future shipments? You know, there was no rule book. We didn't know how to do it. I certainly didn't know what, a, what a, an importer and distributor did, so I did what I thought was best. Um, actually, if I, I'll, I'll tell the story of what happened with Upshaw. Um, my brother was with Mario Lubinsky, we had just started with the Chepos, and when, he's, when he was at Mario Lubinsky's place, Lubinsky carried a very wide range of, of stuff, and he showed my brother some pipes from England, and he told my brother that the name of the, the guy who made the pipes was John Barnes, <laughs> but the name of the pipe was James Upshall. Now, oddly enough, the year before, I had been at the RTDA, and I had met uh, Major Barnes, People called him Colonel, but that was Ken, Kenneth Barnes, not Kennedy, Kennedy's dad. And he was there with their American distributor, Marion Lezak. I tried to get in touch with her and was unable to, so I thought they weren't being imported into the United States any longer. 
And when I saw the James Upshaw that my brother brought back from Lubinsky, I was quite impressed. So in 1982, I went to the second Dunhill and Main, Main Dealer Conference in, in London, and my goals were twofold. Get to McConnell with the tobaccos and find James Upshaw. And I had absolutely no luck until Ken McConnell looked at me and said, well, I don't know a John Barnes, but I do know a Ken Barnes. And he gave me Ken's number. I called him up and said to him, listen, I'm very interested in your pipes, but you don't have an American distributor. Now I was interested in, in those pipes at that point from my retail store. And Kennedy Barnes said, what? No distributor? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> and then he, he yelled at me. He goes, where are you? I said, London. He goes, get out here. I said, where are you? It turns out he was, of course, in Tilshead, which was, you know, was like five miles north of Stonehenge. And the next day I was with the fellow I mentioned who had the store with the guy with the 16 Dunhills. He and his wife were with me and my wife on this trip. He was a Dunhill main dealer as well. And the four of us took off, and he did the driving. He did fine. And we get to Tilshead, and I said to him, I said, listen, we want to hear really loud noises because that's going to indicate, you know, saws that are hand saws and not phrasing machines and this is supposed to be a handmade pipe well the, the noise was deafening so bad that the donkeys in the field next to it were braying all the time and if ken if, if you get a chance next time you speak to kennedy ask him to do a donkey imitation <laughs> but we go in and we're looking around and, and kennedy was great and shows us the whole place and then i started opening up these wire mesh boxes with dozen with a dozen pipes in each and I said what are these and he said seconds and I said uh-huh I said how much do they cost and he told me and I said how many do you have here and he said oh that's 160 dozen and I said okay I'll take those and he goes what <laughs> and then the, I, I made it very clear I was interested in importing his pipes we discussed a lot towards that he said he couldn't tell me right now and then as it turns out that summer he said, I'm coming to the United States because of all the crazy coincidences, Associated Imports, which was a, another distributor far better established than we were, uh, had also contacted Upshaw about importing the pipes. They were two miles down the road from us. <laughs> In the whole United States, they were only, we could have walked practically. And Ken came, came and he spent the day with us and he spent the day with the folks from Associated and he came back on a Friday evening and we were sure we were not going to get it and he said let's do it guys and the reason was very sensible he said I won't be that important to them but to you I'll mean everything and that's how it happened huh that's how we started and the, the uptrolls wow. were a little crude at that time I, you know, I taught Ken how to make pipes I mean Ken talked about all this stuff and he's, he's not a very good I have to stop kidding with Ken about something something I would like to say I saw many cutters, and the cutting stage in handmade pipes is where the pipe is made or not. It is the most important stage, and the great cutters have certain elements in common. And of the great cutters, you know, it's one thing to spend 20 minutes fretting over a block. It's another thing to have to turn them out in a minute or two minutes. Ken Barnes was as good as anybody as a cutter. He won't tell you that, but he was amazing. He also almost cut his thumb off doing it because Upshaw used a 20-some-odd-inch open table saw and he was literally pressing this wood as it was diminishing in size against that spinning wheel and one day there was a, uh, a rotted part of the wood and he hit that and the blade went right into his finger nearly cut it off Oof. but ken was a great cutter and that's I, I say about ken he could see a block of wood in three dimensions and sort of understand how to suck out the very best piece of that wood so what else did you guys import and distribute? Well, a, a lot of the brands didn't do very well. I mean, some of them did. We had James Upshaw in England. We had some leather goods made by a fellow named Ashley there. Uh, we, had a, we had probably Les Wood's first line of pipes that he made called the Heathmake. Uh, that was my homage to Barling. That's a very long story that uh, another time... Um, then we had the Elephant and Castle tobaccos. In Italy, we had Ser Jacopo, Radice, Capitello, um, Il Cepo, Mastro de Paia, Tinino Iacono, Pusella. I don't know if I'm forgetting anything. And there was various, we had some sundry items from them and so, and so forth. 
And if I remember correctly, back then the the RTDA, which is now the IPCPR, and I hate the name, uh, but that was held in like in a New York City hotel, and everybody had a room, and you just kind of room hopped. No, actually, we were we were post that. There was a large ballroom, and we had um, we had displays on the floor. We got into some trouble. Um, Bill Fader, I believe, was the head of the RTDA at that time. Yeah. And what we did was we, we couldn't afford a, a booth the first year, so we invited people to come visit us at a suite. That we didn't even have a suite. We had a hotel room. And that's how we first started you know, showing the pipes. It was really sort of interesting because we didn't realize how much we had grown until we, went to, we actually took a booth on the floor but we had a preview showing for our, our customers, and this was modeled on the Dunhill Main Dealer thing. If you bought a dozen of the pipes, you had certain privileges, and these people could come up and they could select pipes before the show. And we went out into the hallway, and or actually I was called out into the hallway, and there were about 60 people online to come pick pipes. And I said, okay, <laughs> we're in trouble. We don't have enough bags. <laughs> So it was it was nice, you know, it's a nice feeling when all of a sudden you realize, wow, I think we've made it. <laughs> and, yeah, well, and then you have the trouble of getting enough pipes to satisfy them. Yeah, we were actually pretty good at that. We, well, you know, Upshaw was a very large, um, to those days, certainly, they were making 13,000 pipes a year. We were using about 8,000 of them. So we had a lot of pipes. Of those, about 3,000 were tills heads. So we were selling about 5,000 um, Upshall first year, and we were selling, I don't remember the exact figures, but somewhere in the neighborhood of four or 5,000 Jacobos. It was not too far behind. The The difference in sales volume was the tills heads. Now, would your, so your your retailers that were coming shopping with you were at the at the trade show, would they buy enough for uh, to last them a year at that one shot? Uh, usually not. Our Our program was, and a lot of this was patterned off off of Dunhill. Dunhill had a guy, and I forget his name, and Michael sounds familiar, but I, I, I'm sorry to, I, I send my regards to him wherever he is, hope he and his family are well, because I thought he was a very forward-thinking uh, marketing person. If you bought our pipes and you bought 12, you received a little extra discount, and you could exchange them at any time. So if they didn't sell, you would send them back. So we would, if you called me in, in your store and you said, Pete, I'd like to see this and this, and you gave me a general idea, I might send you three dozen pipes. You could show them to your customers, take, let's say, 12 or 16 pipes and send back six or eight pipes, and you just get billed for the difference. You'd get a credit, and then you'd get a billing, and it would be for just what you've taken. And that worked really well. So people, people were constantly sending out shipments. Um, people just expected to see special stuff at the show, and we did try to have special stuff. Uh, Ken especially was really good with that. At, at times, Jacopo was too, when they made their melon apples. They made some apples the size of, I mean, they were just enormous. As a matter of fact, Les Wood, we, we went to have a couple of those banded by Les Wood, and then Les Wood made apples like that. I don't know if you ever made them as big as that, but Les made a bunch of apples that big. Wow. <laughs> Uh, let's jump back to Dunhill for just a minute. Uh, your sales rep on the retail side, was that Lester? Lester Garrett? Yeah. Lester no, Lester was actually, by the time we had Alan DeViti, Lester Garrett, uh, Lester, was it Lester Garrett? Lester yeah. Garrett was his boss. He was above him. <laughs> I did, I did, I, I became, I became a little bit of a tyrant with Dunhill because, you know, we, we did have that kind of volume. I, it wasn't intentional, but they had a drawing for um, a free meal at the Four Seasons restaurant. And the only day I've ever been to the RTDA in a suit and tie was that day. And they <laughs> said to me, you know, do you fill out the form for the drawing? And I said, yeah, but I better win. I was kidding, but I won. <laughs> I don't know if it was coincidence or not. <laughs> uh, I, I had the... Uh pleasure of meeting Lester several times and hearing the stories going back to the 1940s and 50s and he was just uh, quite a character. Is he still with us? 
No, no. Last, uh, I think he passed away in 2001 or two. Well, Lester, it was good to know you. He was he, he was a funny guy. He was a, he was a good guy. Uh, were there some of the uh, some of the pipe brands that you imported that were that you thought were absolutely great and just never took off? Well, um, I used barling as my bait for all of my guys. I, you know, I showed them. Uh, Radici was a funny thing. We're sitting in a restaurant, and I handed him some. I believe it was two sixty-six apples, and he said to me, "He said fato a macchina." I said, "No, fato a mano." You know, made by hand, made by yeah. machine. And this is going back and forth, and all of a sudden he goes, "Mondio, fato a mano," <laughs> and um, his respect for the barling just shot up through the roof. And then when he realized that the stems were also handmade, he just looked at me. He said, "This is just very time-consuming." Now, Radici made extremely artistic pipes, and I think in, you know, my sensibilities in 1988, this is 2016, there's an awful lot of artisanal uh, pipe making going on, but Radici was extremely creative. Um, you know, and I'd, I'd have to start getting into how they make the pipes and the differences and that make me feel one pipe is better than the other. Jacopo was really, really well made. Upshul used the best wood. Uh, Capitel was very exacting. Chepo was inventive, used good wood. They always smoked well. Um, the One of the problems that Pusella and uh, Iacono had is that they used a very hard wood from Calabria, so the shaping was difficult, although they did a good job with that. Uh, Master de Pio was very good. They went through a little slump when uh, Giancarlo Guidi left to make Sir Jacopo, but I think they came back very well. And... You know, it's, a lot of it comes down to which one do you like better, but they were all very good pipes. I would have to say that the most complete pipe we had was Sir Jacopo. Um, the Upshaw was the best bowl. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's quite an amazing selection and, I mean, marquee names to think back on. And then, of course, you saw the transition of the popularity of Italian pipes go through the roof because... Prior to the 1970s, there really wasn't a, an Italian pipe market. Yeah, I think, you know, they, they sort of worked in concert. You had the you had Costello, which, of course, is a beautifully made pipe, uh, beautifully crafted, and Costello was very well known. The problem was that Halko Rohr at the time really limited the amount of pipes that they brought in. They didn't seem to have an awful lot of interest in bringing in many, and they used it in a way that I did not like at all, which was they would go to a dealer and they would see how much business you've done, and you were sort of allotted Costellos by how much business you did, and that, that didn't didn't strike me very well. Um, that sort of broke open, and certainly as people started going over to Italy, that became we, we we supplied ourselves, and so did others. You know, it was just became that simple, and that broke the Holoco deadlock that way. But Costello was sort of the bedrock in a sense, and. On the other side, I think Jacopo became the bedrock in the what's now called the Pesaro School. But you had an awful lot of very good companies up in the Cantu area, an awful lot in the Pesaro area. Now I think there's an awful lot of guys throughout. I think my impression, and I'm, I'm out of the business, so I don't see anything more than what I, I see in general, is that the Italian pipes have lost some of their ardor. They're no longer quite as popular. The Danish stuff is extremely popular. Uh, when did you leave the business, and what else have you done with your life? I left in 1992, um, pursued a career as a computer, really a database programming consultant, and um, I ended up working for many years at SD Lauder. I, I, I'm actually the guy who programmed their manufacturing system that apparently is still in place. There's obviously other guys that have been doing it, and then I took a couple of years. I did well during that, and I had a lifelong uh, passion with horses, horse breeding. Originally it was with standard breads, but it then became thoroughbreds. And in 1997, I bought my first broodmare. And that led to um, several years where I raced my own horses and where I became a bloodstock agent giving people advice. And I did matings and so forth. And I did the breedings for several stakes winners. I actually owned a stakes winner. And the sort of crowning achievement for somebody who 
uh, is a bloodstock agent or really a pedigree advisor is to do the mating on a horse that runs in the Kentucky Derby. And I did that in 2013, Falling Sky ran in the Kentucky Derby. Now, he did run dead last, <laughs> but he did run the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> so, you know, there's been some nice high moments there, and that's that's a a very different type of business. It's so rural, and it um, really appeals to a lot of your, your senses, and it's sort of primitive, and I love that for it. And that's got to be an awfully competitive business as well. It is competitive if you're smart and you know... And, and you, you, everybody needs to have somebody to help them in the, the horse business. If you do not do that, you're probably going to fail. The very wealthy people fail. These are captains of industry who in their own business would never chance to, to do things, some of the things that on their own that they do in the horse business. And they very often think that they're entitled to do having great horses and so forth. And you'll see them toss a half a million dollars at a horse, and the horse can't run a lick. You really need to have solid advice. Even if you're good at giving advice yourself, you need to have somebody to bounce it off of. Um, I have a friend who was an extremely capable guy. He was in all facets of the horse game, and he had a horse. It's actually a, a cute story. Uh, in, in the auctions, they sometimes do what's called a kicker bid, where a friend of yours will start the bidding. And I did that in this horse. And I turned to, to my friend and, like, don't leave me hanging with this horse because nobody was bidding on it. And he ended up buying the horse back. That's something that when you don't want to sell it, you buy it for at a price of your own choosing. He kept the horse, and the horse is the only horse to have ever won the New York Triple Crown. His name was Tin Cup Chalice. And I was, the, I was his racing manager, even though he could have done this all on his own. But he made money because he was smart enough to realize you, you cannot be in a game that runs by emotion without having somebody to check your emotions. Wow. And uh, just, just for uh, shits and giggles, a, uh, a breeding with a really good mare costs how much? Depends on the sire. Um, the, the key is if you can do this, I had a client who I got a mare for, I, I called her my best in show. But best in show is when you're going to, or best in sale, you're going to have a sale and this was, I felt, the best value in the entire sale. And the mare was in fold to a stallion by the name of Tappet, whose stud fee was 12500 at the time. And Tappet has gone on to become the world's leading sire with a stud fee of 300000 The baby that she was carrying in foal sold for 450000 So she did very well in that mare. Yeah, and compared to me, my stud fee is I have to pay for it. Um, and that's a whole different kind of thing. Sorry. Um. It, it, it really depends. A good stallion in the thoroughbreds is a lot more expensive than the standard breads because the standard breads have, uh, allow uh, artificial insemination, whereas the thoroughbreds have to have live cover, meaning there actually has to be intercourse between the animals. Well, and it makes pipe buying and collecting seem a whole lot cheaper now. <laughs> yes, it does. Pete, we will wrap this up with the fast five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? No, but go ahead. What's your favorite pipe? Brand Barling. What is your favorite tobacco? All-time Elephant Castle, the Roanoke, followed by Elephant Castle, the Stout, if I'm smoking a Latakia, and currently uh, Gowith and Hogarth, uh, Louisiana, like... And what's your favorite drink? Um, not really. It is uh, I, uh, alcoholic sake. Otherwise, I drink too much diet soda. <laughs> uh, when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? Book. And the final question, which will be tough for you, do you have a particularly favorite pipe-smoking-related memory that we didn't talk about? I have to tell you, there's an awful lot. Um, well, we in our retail store, we engraved lighters for people. We bought a, uh, a new Hermes pantograph machine, and so we would engrave the lighters if somebody purchased a lighter there. If there was any fancy engraving, there was actually somebody in the jewelry store who would do it. But 
um, we really it stopped selling an awful lot of lighters, so we brought the new Hermes engraver over to England to the James Upshaw factory, and they began to engrave the pipes. The problem was they didn't have a, a logo. So the first pipe that was ever engraved is a pipe that I have right in front of me, actually. It's a, it's a very unusual Dun, uh, Dunhill. It's a very unusual James Upshaw because when I saw it, Ken said to me, I think it's really maybe an X. And I looked at it, and it's a beautiful triangle shank billiard, huge, the gorgeous straight grain. And I said, this is a better X. So it ended up becoming marked a BX. It's the only BX ever made. And James Upshaw is engraved on it. It's the first James Upshaw ever engraved, but there's no uh, ellipse around the James Upshaw because they hadn't gotten the blank yet. That would come in a couple of weeks. But if you look at some older James Upshaw, sometimes you'll see what looks like a very fine line going through the name James Upshaw. That's when the, the bit of the pantograph machine was worn down and they needed to actually get a new one and nobody had replaced it, so it would, make, it would actually make a little pressure line. <laughs> Ah, uh, the the uh, the little tricks of behind the pipe world. I'm sure you know tons of them. Thank you very much for joining us. I, I appreciate all the stories. Ryan, it's a pleasure. Have a great trip to Chicago, profitable and safe. Thank you very much, and we'll be back in just a minute. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. Do you need a reliable source for ordering pipes and tobacco? Do you find it difficult to get your favorite blends outside of the U.S.? Fournoggins.com stocks all of your favorite pipes and tobaccos and ships all over the world. All forms of payment are accepted and orders are processed the same day. There are no worries when ordering from Fournoggins.com. Fournoggins.com is your source for all of your pipes and tobacco needs. We ship in the U.S. and international with no worries. Fournoggins.com for all of your pipes and tobacco needs. This is Internet Radio. And we are back. And, uh, you know, just another wonderful guy with a bunch of history and knowledge of our beloved industry and hobby. All right. For uh, music, uh, the first night of Passover was last Friday. And I actually got to spend it with my parents, which was kind of nice. Um, so uh, my friend and listener of the show Dino sent me a link to this uh, acapella group doing a uh, uh, basically a song or the telling of the Passover Seder to a certain Michael Jackson song so here's a little bit of fun for you We realize 
the letter y slash or hyphen studs and you can find them on find them on youtube it was a lot of fun check your mailbox you moron in the mailbag uh don't forget my schedule for the chicago pipe show is uh wednesday night i'll be roaming around the uh, resort kind of freeloading on uh, Thursday from 10 to 4, the blending seminar that I'll be hosting in the smoking tent. I believe there's still some spaces available. If you're there and interested, it's 35 bucks. We're going to have fun. Uh, Thursday evening, a uh, little bit of free time for me to roam around. Friday is the pre-show swap and sale, and I'll be uh, doing my swapping and sale and then... And then Friday afternoon and Friday evening gets busy and gets going. Come by and see me at my table on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, we'll have some uh, Sutliff and uh, McBaron samples for everybody. Uh, and then Sunday night, uh, well, Saturday night, the dinner. And then Sunday night is just kind of relaxing in the smoking tent. And then Monday back home again. Next week's show, I'll spend a little bit of extra time with a full wrap-up of what happened in Chicago for you that couldn't get there, or for you that were there and didn't see stuff. All right, in the mailbag regarding last week's show, Jabo writes, Always love your show. You do a great job, great guests, advice, especially from someone so young. Thanks. Uh, wish I could see you in Chicago, but alas, no. Maybe in Nashville. Keep it between the lines and enjoy your existence, Jeb. Thank you, Jeb. I am existing and enjoying it. Uh, Dino writes, An absolutely delightful show tonight. No overtones of Suris. Just great conversation, lovely music, informative and helpful insights, and a pig butt. What's not to like? Uh, I'm devastated that I'm going to miss my second Chicago show in more than 20 years. And from all the discussion at our CPCC meeting last Saturday, this one's going to be a monster, the biggest we've ever held. 
Pipe Folk, don't you miss this show. Be there or be sad. Thanks for another terrific show, Dino. You're welcome. Uh, New Broom says, I'm with you, Brian. I'm left-handed and play my right-handed guitar upside down and backwards. I would always ask to try friends' instruments, and they were invariably right-handed. I had an embarrassment for a guitar back many years ago that was missing a string and had a variable depth from string to fret because the neck was somewhat curved or the bridge was pulling or maybe both (laughs) or it was worn out Um, an acquaintance asked me upon seeing it in a corner would you mind if I played your guitar I said heck no but good luck (laughs) he picked it up and messed with the tuning a bit and proceeded to make it sound amazing (laughs) little did I know then that Lenny Bro was was a guitarist rest in peace my friend um Let's see, Pipe uh, Pipe Smoking Biker said, Great show as usual, Brian. I've been listening for a few months now, and I'm almost finished with the old episodes. This show has been very beneficial for me as a pipe smoker of less than a year. Hey, welcome aboard. Um, Mike Murphy 260, who just premiered his own podcast, uh, says, Highlight of the episode, Pig Butt. <laughs> yeah. Also, keeping a close eye on that Nording Hunter series, Wild Boar Pipe. Keep it up, sir. The show, not the pig butt. <laughs> okay, uh, Mike. Hope you got the. Um, uh, hope you got the, the Nording Hunter series. That one went uh, just over a hundred bucks, I think. Uh, let's see the Kilted one. Great show, Brian. Chris sounds very interesting. Although my knowledge of wine is limited to red and white, and I know even less about guitars. I really like the music choice. Good luck with your tobacco blending seminar. Although I arrive in Chicago on Monday, I don't make it to St. Charles until sometime on Thursday, and I'm gutted that I'm missing out, but I can't rely on your pl- on your public transport to get me out there on time. I look forward to catching you at some point of the weekend. Nice pig butt. I can't see it fitting into my sporn. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Well, yeah, sheep. Never mind. Uh, Casey Ghostwrites, uh, fine show. Chris was a very entertaining guest. I know very little about guitar playing and winemaking, so I followed the conversation as best I could. He seemed a modest person who had things under control. Didn't like the music selection. Not making it to Chicago this year. Don't know if I ever will get back. Dan, hope hope to see you back again soon. All right, uh, got any questions, comments? Email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com, or post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page right on the uh, right below this episode there, and I'll read them all. I do appreciate them. And in just a minute, forum-related rant time. What are you looking for in a pipe? Is it the quality of aged briar? Is it a certain shape or finish? Maybe it's the sound engineering that ensures an effortless, smooth draw with each and every puff. That's exactly the kind of pipe Savinelli has delivered for generations now. With such a variety of shapes, finishes, and sizes, it's easy to find something that fits your sensibility and style. Just this year, we've expanded our lineup to include the Bianca, the Lancelotto, the 2015 Collection, and the final installment in the Leonardo da Vinci line, the Vitruvio. For a bolder style, try our more colorful 2015 editions as well. The exotic cashmere, the sultry licoricea, and the striking Archibaldino red. So whatever you're looking for in a pipe, know there's a Savinelli waiting for you. Contact your local or online retailer to find your Savinelli today. Back a couple of weeks when there was that whole big hubbub of uh, YouTube pipe presenters being nasty, dirty people. <laughs> well, I got a message about a oh about a thread that was going around on our own PipesMagazine.com forums, and um, somebody had accidentally misspelled Virginia cigarettes, and they 
came out vagina cigarettes. Well, in trying to find the thread, I did a search on on the forums for vagina, and you'd be surprised at how many times it comes up. Now, about 50% of the time is in reference to the female part. Uh, the other 50% of the time is because somebody doesn't know how to spell Virginia. V-I-R-G-I-N-A. Virginia. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, uh, vagina is not spelled nearly like Virginia. However, if you go onto the forums and just search vagina, you'll be absolutely surprised at how many times it does show up in reference to the part. And then even more shocking than that is how many times it shows up referenced as misspelled the wrong word somebody wasn't paying attention and then guess what happens the minute somebody misses it up oops there goes the thread off on a whole different tangent yeah a whole complete different tangent jumps out um so uh the holier than thou's on the forums um please uh watch your p's and q's and your states of virginia versus uh feminine parts all right, that was uh, pointed out to me by uh, Lord of the Pipe Rings, Brad, who uh, I got to hang out with them a little bit last Thursday. It was a lot of fun. A uh, great group of people at the uh, Las Vegas Pipe Club. Uh, can't wait to see them again, maybe in July when I'm out there for the trade show. All right, that's enough of it. Uh, I'm tired. I got to get on a plane. I'm going to Chicago. Hope to see you all there. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to Pete Siegel for joining me. And until next time. Cares about the clouds when we're together. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy Hobbits and guys from Mississippi, hairy feet and no shoes.